0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground.
1: Welcome, everyone. Nice to see people tonight. I often like to take the time um, in September and to take a couple weeks and review the basic structure of the practice. In some ways, it's really the easiest thing in the world. And in other ways, it's the most frustrating thing in the world, this continuity of mindful awareness. It seems like it should be pretty straightforward. And it is, you know, in terms of understanding it, pretty straightforward. But to actually train the mind or trust that it can be that simple, that's not so easy. We have a lot of confidence that happiness is more complicated requires you know a, a tightening of the mind and body in order to get what we want in order to get rid of what we want, don't want we trust the tension more than we do the naturalness of the practice itself this is why in practice there's such a big emphasis on right attitude even before we're formally meditating, just to cultivate a good attitude in the mind. It's like in life, we sort of know this is true, that the ends don't justify the means. So if we're angry in order to set something really good in motion in our lives, it's probably not going to happen. Or if we use a lot of greed to set in motion something really wonderful in our lives, it's probably not going to happen. If we want to set something wonderful in motion like being more wise or being more kind or being less tight, then that's what we actually have to practice. The means has to have the flavor of the goal or the aspiration. And this is why it's really important Uh, to think or to reflect well, what, what actually does this heart trust? You know, superficially we might think, boy, if I had a lot of money I'd be happy or if people liked me or people treated me the way I want to be treated, then I'd be happy. But if we're just even a little reflective, we'll realize, no, it's not actually about having a lot of money. It's about feeling safe in the world. And I just think having a lot of money will make me feel safe or having a lot of love from all of my friends will make me feel safe. But that changes in how we practice because instead of trying to get a lot of money or having a lot of people treat me the way I want to be treated, we get interested in, like if I want the experience of safety, then my practice is The practice of being safe now with the experiences that are arising, that are showing up. If we want to be peaceful, then we practice being peaceful now. If we want to be kind, then we practice being kind with the experiences of the mind and body, the conditions of our life right now. That's how we become more wise, more kind, more peaceful, more calm, more fearless, or any of the wholesome qualities we might aspire to. Because if they're not available right now, then we're in that game about what I'm looking for is out there. So what we end up practicing is struggling to get somewhere. So we get really good at struggling to get somewhere. So then later, what we're really good at is not being there, but struggling to get somewhere. That becomes the habit of the mind to struggle. Right? Because that's what we've been practicing. So it's really important when we're, you know, have the wherewithal, fortunate enough to have the wherewithal to formally train our mind and heart, like in meditation practice, to put aside some time, then we want to make sure that what we're setting in motion when we formally sit is actually in the direction we want to go. And so at the beginning of the set, the first thing you want to do, instead of rushing into some meditation technique that you learned somewhere, is you want to allow to arise in your mind and heart some deeper, deepest sense of aspiration. Like, what does this heart trust? qualities, what flavor of mind, what do we trust? So let's just take a few seconds. It would be nice to hear from a few people. Just do that right now. So whether we like it or not, whether we're conscious of it or not, we are setting our life in motion in a particular direction, consciously or unconsciously. We're all Aiming in some direction. And the fact that we're here with a mind that's like this, conditioned personality that's this, like this, that's because in the past there was a living being we call who I used to be. And that living being also consciously or unconsciously had an aspiration. And this is the result of that. You know, of all those moments of some being, me aiming, directing, inclining. And then this moment, this way of relating, this conditioned mind, these qualities were set in motion and now they're manifesting as this mind and body, this experience right now. So what do we want to set in motion? What do we aspire to? What actually comes to our mind? So just take a few moments. And if you do have some clarity about what's coming to mind now as an aspiration for your heart, for your mind, for this life, in what way would you like to incline this mind? One way to think about it, on your deathbed, what qualities of heart or mind would you like to be manifesting, arising in that moment? or any challenging moment that is likely to arise down the road for us, what kind of mind, heart, would we like to arise for us? What comes to mind? Yeah, Anne. Sounds kindness, acceptance, and love? That's nice. Other thoughts. Yeah. Nice and loud so we can all hear you. Yeah, I think, uh, I, I think I'm leaning or reaching for a sense of safety,
2: and that, that's a big theme, you know, in my life. And um, so I am struggling <laughs> yeah. uh, for that.
1: Yeah, but then but if we aspire for that safety, then even in the struggling, like even in the experience of not being safe, we want to activate that aspiration like, I wonder, and we can be really humble about it, I wonder what safety feels like, looks like, now when I'm not feeling safe. Instead of the thought, I'm not safe now, but I aspire to be safe out there, we're always, this is our training ground, the present moment. So if we want to be safe later, then we practice, at least stay open to the possibility Because isn't it true that in this moment there are ways to feel less safe, right? Depending on what we do with our mind, what we pay attention to, and how we pay attention to that, we can start to feel less safe. But there's other ways we can, this mind can be in the moment where we might start to feel more safe. Like just a simple example of that, just reflecting, well, this heart, this mind, it's doing the best it can right now. I mean, I may not, may not be good enough, may not even be wise the way this mind is relating to my circumstances, but I can see that given the conditioning of this mind, the cultural conditioning, all the other ways this mind has been conditioned, this is, this is about as good as it can do right now. And I care about that, and I can be forgiving about the limitations of this mind, and I can appreciate that it could be a lot worse the way this mind might be relating to my life, right? So already I, that, that, that perspective already feels a little bit more safe than spending time judging myself or hitting myself for, you know, being less than perfect. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, Jack. Um, I would
2: like uh, freedom from the craving to be somebody else somewhere else, preferably before I'm on my deathbed would be good.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And in a somewhat funny way, not really, but, you know, this is what that thought at the time of death in kind of traditional Buddhist cosmological terms, that thought at the moment of death wanting to be somebody is what sets in motion (laughs) rebirth. On and on and on. In very much the same way, moment to moment, it sets in motion. You know, we have a thought Oh, when I get home i wanna right I want to become the person who's eating what's in the fridge, or I want to become the person who's watching that program or finally says something that needs to be said to our cat or our partner or somebody, and that sets something in motion too, you know, because then we're more likely to be that person who goes to the fridge, goes to the internet, goes to the partner, and you know it sort of plays out. That becoming idea, whatever it was. And it's useful to imagine how light and liberating it is not, like Jack suggested, not to need to become anybody. Doesn't mean it's not the same as being afraid of becoming somebody, but not to need to become somebody. It's really liberating. Yeah, time for a couple more. What other aspirations do you trust that come up tonight or other times for you so first back here and then up here Um, freedom from compulsively categorizing experiences as good or bad yeah that's such a prison just to have to think in terms of good and bad like even as we hear different people speak up just notice how deeply entrenched it is in our minds to evaluate the person's comment I mean, it's really fright, frightening to see, and we don't realize how heavy that is. That habit of evaluating—it's a kind of conceit. It's basically—it's like that pack mentality. Somebody says something, and then like, "Oh, that was really great." So that person's there, and I'm here because I couldn't have said something so wise or something, or that was stupid. I'm up here, and that person—I mean, we don't. To do it that explicitly, but but that's basically what's happening is that evaluation. Ellen, she could get the mic up here. Maybe people could just pass it forward. Up here in the corner. You can always say your name if you speak up too. It's nice to hear.
0: All right, I'm Sarah. Um for the past few years I've been noticing like this deep sadness and it gets worse like if I know I have plans and then they fall through or something like this. And now I'm very aware that this is loneliness and I'm really, really uncomfortable being alone. So I fill this with doing and I try to fill it with people. And when the people fall through, I'm disappointed and this is out there. And when the doing is like to burnout phase, then, you know, that's pushing me to really realize that I need to find the inner calm and safety of of I guess not not recognizing that feeling as loneliness, maybe, or thinking of it differently.
1: Yeah. Sarah, did you say? Yeah. Thank you, Sarah. And that's actually a really good segue. And we'll, we'll go back to sharing it in, in a few minutes, but I want to say a little bit more. So I mentioned right attitude and actually taking the time every day, at the morning, before you go to bed, and in particular right at the beginning of a sit to the activity of our day and in, even more importantly, the activity of our formal meditation. It works best when it comes out of our deepest aspiration to be safe, to be free of these different compulsive habits of like good and bad, and or any kind of neediness, anything that feels weightful, to be free. So some aspiration for liberation from what's oppressive in life or which what is free or beautiful in life. So it might be the aspiration and just be realistic. It doesn't really matter maybe expressed in terms of what the mind experiences as as oppressive and weightful and not trustworthy, to be free of that. Or maybe it sees it in the positive, something that it does trust, like a love that doesn't come and go, a kind of universal friendliness and compassion. Or um, a sense of the heart being fearless, not afraid, trusting. So then once we have, like we've spent a few minutes touching base, touching ground in that deepest aspiration, and some days, some moments, it's going to be more clear, other days less clear. But any technique, any way that we might train the mind, then it's going to be so much more valuable having been connected with that aspiration. So then we understand, okay, now I know, because I've been studying Buddhist meditation practice, I know whatever it is, it has something to do with awareness. But then as we sort of bring up the instructions we've heard, it's in the context of that aspiration to be free for the heart's liberation, the heart's freedom. However, you particularly define it in that moment, Because that's important, because it needs to be real. We don't want it to be some abstract, sort of theoretical or sentimental religious idea. We want it to be grounded in our experience. Like the liberation we seek is from the actual present moment oppression or fear or contraction that we're experiencing. So it's not theoretical. And then, there, then we we know, okay, it has something to do with awareness. And then immediately you might notice, like, you trying to be aware, okay? I should, you know, for some of you who have more of the type A personality, some of me, who have that type A personality. And then immediately that contract. Wait, wait a minute. That that attitude I'm using now to start my meditation practice, that is not in the same does not have the same flavor of that aspiration I was just reflecting on a few seconds ago. Okay, so trying hard to be aware, maybe that's not the way. Oh yeah, I remember somebody saying once that awareness is already happening. So okay, don't try, notice. Right? So it's more about understanding than it is about trying to be mindful. Understanding that knowing, the knowing mind, or whatever you want to call it, awareness, mindfulness, the knowing mind, it's already happening. That's why sometimes, like we did tonight, we take a moment and we notice, oh yeah, hearing is happening. And when I look, I don't see, I can't find anybody who's trying to hear, can you stop yourself from hearing? Is there somebody who's in control of hearing or not hearing? Well, as long as the mind is present, hearing happens. And it isn't a matter of somebody personally trying to hear. So we we know that uh, the training has something to do with awareness. So first we were grounded in Sometimes, maybe even often, life feels oppressive. And then for each of us, what's hard in life will be specific to our own conditions. But the thing that we'll all share is being a human being with this kind of mind that's conditioned in the way that all of our minds are conditioned, it's oppressive and weightful at times, hard to bear, anxious insecure, unstable, right? And, and here's the amazing thing, there's some intuition it doesn't have to be this way. Otherwise, why would we come to Common Ground on Wednesday night? There's some sense that whatever that oppressive feeling we have at times, maybe a lot of the time, it doesn't have to be that way. So then we pick up the training because we've been here at least a little bit or studied a little, read something, we have some sense that the path the Buddha is pointing to has something to do with awareness, being awake, being mindful. So we start to explore and we have some sense that whatever that path of training is, it has to have some similar flavor to the aspiration, what we aspire to. Safety, freedom, ease, a sense of healing, a deep sense of healing, a deep sense of freedom. And then when we explore the experience of awareness, we begin to sense, oh yeah, there is a way, I don't quite get it, I don't quite trust it, it's a little bit hard to grasp, but there seems to be a way to relax into the experience of knowing. You know, we all love those moments in our lives where we were just in the flow, laughing with a friend or playing ping-pong or, you know, building blocks with a kid or hanging out with our dog or whatever it might be. Walking in the woods, swimming in the ocean, making love. I mean, there's all these sort of things, dancing, cooking, cooking. And we weren't thinking about the past or the future. We weren't trying to do a good job or afraid of not doing a good job. In a way, the experience, the actual subjective experience was the whole thing was just happening on its own. And because of the absence of somebody trying to do a good job or afraid of doing a bad job or wondering what this is going to look like or how does this compare to what I did before, because of the absence of that mental activity, it felt really light and free. And the mind was aware, it wasn't like we were in some trance or some la-la land, the mind was clearly there, the awareness was being aware, but it was really more about the absence of neurotic activity than about the specialness or the specificness of what was going on. So we have some experiences to draw on. And then the question is, like, well, now as I'm in my formal training, doing my Buddhist meditation practice at home here at Common Ground, and we're connected with our deepest aspiration to be free, to be happy, to be at ease, to be fearless, or however we might language it, and we know it has something to do with awareness, and now we're exploring what awareness is, then we can just sense, okay, if if this heart aspires to freedom, aspires to love, aspires to release or fearlessness, then how might that be related to this experience of being awake or being aware or trusting the knowing, the mind that knows? So even if we never heard any more instruction except for those, you know, what I've said thus far, and then just went from there with trial and error, we'd get pretty far on the path because over and over again you would notice yourself, like maybe you enter a little bit of that flow that I mentioned that happens sometimes in life, and then there we are just aware of the body sitting, aware of the breath, aware of the hearing, aware of whatever is arising in the mind and body, but nobody is trying to control it, nobody's judging it, nobody's trying to make it different than what it is, and so that lightness and flow and ease and the absence of neurotic activity arises, and then we wanna make it last, or we wanna make it better, and it ruins it. So even that little lesson would be quite instructive. Oh, felt really free, really right, really easy, really natural. Like It was all happening on its own. And then there was a strong sense of a me who wanted to own that nice experience and make it last or make it better or tell somebody about it, and then it went away. So what does that teach us? That whatever that is, it doesn't have to do with somebody wanting something. That somebody wanting something is in the opposite direction of whatever it is my heart actually intuitively gravitates towards, aspires to. That's like spiritual gold. Even though it's unpleasant to have lost it, but the lesson, you can't pay enough money for a lesson like that. To really get that what, what this heart really Aspires to the freedom, the love, or whatever, has nothing to do with somebody wanting something. Because mostly, when you look, like if we were to evaluate our day, you know, bring somebody up, sit them down here, and interrogate them about like every moment of their day, we would find that so many moments, the great majority of the moments, their pursuit, the pursuit of the mind, was trying to make something happen or trying to get rid of something, some kind of control, greed, or aversion. And yet that completely contradicts that insight that we've all had, maybe not with a lot of clarity, but as we practice with more and more clarity, that whatever ease, whatever experience of real love, so not an attached love, but a more universal kind of love or compassion, sense of well-being, Whatever those beautiful experiences we've had, it's in the opposite direction of the the normal, common experience of wanting to make something happen or wanting to get rid of something or wanting to become somebody. Those experiences are one thing in one direction and the experiences of freedom, wisdom, love, ease, are in another direction. And we, can, we need to learn this over and over again because basically we have to uproot the bad habit of thinking that happiness comes by struggling, by hating what we don't like, by being greedy about what we do like, by shutting down because life is difficult, disconnecting, distracting ourselves, becoming superficial. We have to catch each time the mind goes in that direction, it doesn't work, and each time the mind abandons greed, anger, and delusion, those tendencies, things get lighter, more free, a deeper sense of wholeness, love. All of these things are what are there when the neurotic activity ceases. So we have working on the attitude or aspiration as we begin could be as easy as saying to yourself as you after you've composed your body just that basic truth you know, I do care about this life. It isn't easy being a human being having a mind that's been conditioned by culture, by my upbringing by my genetic makeup it isn't easy being a human being I do care about this life and as I reflect deeply it seems to me that it's actually possible, I don't, I don't know the way completely, but it's actually possible to be free. There are certainly moments in my life where I've experienced more freedom and other moments when I've experienced a very contracted, fearful, needy, greedy place. So clearly we know there's a range from real oppression, suffering, less suffering, moments of real freedom. Okay, so I aspire to this end of the spectrum. To the nth degree, whatever that might be. But at least I know there is this end of the spectrum. Anybody not know that? Don't we all know there's a range between times when our heart-mind feels really contracted and heavy, fear-based, greed-based, and times when that's less true? And don't you have a sense, normally the way we're conditioned, we think it's somebody else's fault, like when we're suffering. And maybe it's somebody else's, maybe it's God's gift to us, or maybe it's because we're competent. But but what we're doing now with the teachings of the Buddha is we're looking at that range of experience and beginning to correlate where how the experience is along that spectrum with the quality of the heart or mind itself, the quality of awareness itself. So when the mind, when we're feeling quite oppressed and life feels really heavy, then we start to correlate that with certain attitudes, basically self-centered view. But you check it out for yourself because you don't want to just take it theoretically. You want to see, is that true, that whenever my life feels really oppressive, there's a really strong self-centered view operating in the mind. Like, this isn't fair to me. I really want that. Why does that person get it? So you just check. And then notice also when things feel less oppressive, lighter, more free, love is more available and universal, then in those moments, notice the absence of that self-centered view. It's not like the mind can't conceive of it. It's just that the mind, the thinking mind, or the mind that's operating, the heart that's operating, isn't dependent on ideas with a strong self-view. Keep correlating, and then you understand the training. So first, clarify the aspiration, then take a moment, and this could last for a long time in your set to to basically contemplate the role or the place the importance of awareness how central it is to experiences of suffering the quality of awareness and how central it is to experiences of freedom because we have to first and foremost uproot the hab- the, the thought or the idea the conviction That the reason sometimes I suffer is because somebody made a mistake. I made a mistake, you made a mistake, the world made a mistake. We externalize the causes of suffering. And what we want to do is empower ourselves. Like, if we don't think the cause and the resolution of suffering is in the heart and mind, we're going to not look there. We're going to always try to fix the world or fix our life or usually fix our partners. You know, or, or bosses, or, you know, whom else, somebody out there. But once we understand it's here and that it's really related to awareness, the underlying view that colors awareness, that's a good way of thinking of it. That the basic cause of suffering, or what, it's better actually to learn a different word dukkha. It's the Pali word, Sanskrit word for suffering, but suffering's not a good translation because it it's more universal than what we normally think of suffering as being. It's like life isn't working. Just being in the conditioned realm, having experience is oppressive, it doesn't work. Even when things are really pleasant, there's dukkha. Because we want more of it, we want it to last, we're wondering if someone's gonna take it. So there's even stress when thinks we have a really good existence. So we're noticing like, how awareness and the coloring, the qualities of awareness, really have something to do. And the more we understand the view and the way the view fits in with awareness, self-centered view, the absence of self-centered view, then we can start actually training the mind. So now we know like when we do something simple like being aware of the breath coming in, being aware of the breath going out, we know what we're actually doing is we're purifying the mind of wrong view. So when you train with mindfulness of breathing, and of course there are many ways to train. You can train with a a specific object of meditation like the breath, or you can have a more open awareness with whatever object is predominant in that moment. That's what's being known. But what we're really doing is we're practicing being in the moment without the mind being dependent on self-view. And when self-view arises, and it will, as you know, because it's a big habit, then we recognize, oh, look at that, self-view, self-drama, me trying to be with my breath, and there's suffering. There's stress or tension, contraction. The heart squeezed. And then another moment, two seconds later, and there's just breathing in and it's being known. The sensations of breathing out and they're they're being known. Breathing in and being known. Breathing out and being known. Nobody trying to be aware of the the breath. Nobody comparing this moment of being with the breath to how the sit was yesterday or this idea of wanting to have a nice sit like I had before. There's just breathing in the breath being known. Breathing out, the sensations of the breath being known. And then the mind notices, Not you don't need the language, that the mind just notices the absence of that squeeze. Everything feels light, the experience feels whole, not dualistic, not me trying to be mindful of the breath, but just everything happening on its own. The feeling of freedom, the feeling of, natural love, kindness, what we call metta. It's all there. All the beautiful qualities that any human being would aspire to are just there because there's no self-view operating. So when whatever training you're doing, walking from your car to your office, and you just, oh, I could be mindful. Why not practice what I've been learning at Common Ground now? Well, we, have, we know it's something to do with awareness, and from our previous study we know when there's an active self-view going on then there's greed, anger, and delusion in the mind and things get tight and messy. And it's not about not trying to have self-view because that's also struggling. It's about noticing when there is self-view there's suffering, stress. When there's no self-view there's no stress. When there's a little self-view there's a little stress. And we keep correlating. That's the training. So we take up various trainings. Walking from my car to the office was my training. During that time, I'm aware of the physicality of walking, maybe seeing, maybe hearing. But I'm using the ordinariness of that experience of walking from my car to the office. But I'm really training is when self-view arises to notice that it it, uh, correlates with suffering, stress. And when in those moments when there's not a lot of self-view operating, it correlates with the absence of stress, freedom. When we're sitting in formal meditation, sitting still, the body relaxed and at ease, working with the breath, let's say, breathing in, knowing the breath is coming in, breathing out, knowing the breath is going out, some of those moments you're going to notice the self-view operating and expressing itself in different ways. It may be that we're just lost in a fantasy. And then in that moment of noticing that there's thinking, planning, worrying, whatever, notice the presence or absence of self-view, probably there. Notice the stress that it relates, correlates with that self-view and you've done your job. That's all you have to do. You don't need to hate yourself for being distracted. You don't need to like whip your mind back to the breath or to some other object in the present moment. You just need to see that self-view and stress. Oh, yeah, there it is again. Very little self-view and very little stress. Oh, yeah, there it is again. No self-view, no stress. There it is again. We just keep doing that over and over and over again. And sometimes it will be the stress that will cue you, like you'll be lost in thought, and then because you've been training your mind to you go, oh boy, things are tight in the body and mind. And you're like, oh, what's going on? Oh, this is being known. Oh, self-view, stress. Got it. So it's that's the discerning activity of wisdom. Wisdom, what wisdom does in the mind, and it's not personal. Wisdom is just a little bit like awareness. It's just there. It's often, sometimes not very strong. But what wisdom does is it makes that correlation. It, it likes to connect the dots. Or comprehend. Oh, look at that. This kind of way of seeing, this way of viewing, and feels like a squeeze in the heart, tightness in the heart. Or, oh look at the mind not fixed, not taking things personally, not struggling to make things other than they are. Notice how open things are, how light, how much love there is, compassion there is, tenderness there is. Isn't that interesting? And again, it's not like this language is actually going to be going on in your mind. The discerning process doesn't it's, doesn't need language. It doesn't need to be mediated by language. But to share it, of course, we need to talk in terms of words. I'll, I'll come back next Wednesday and probably for maybe two more weeks, and we'll keep looking at sort of basic review of our practice. But in the short term, just take the time when you sit Take a couple minutes and reflect on your deepest aspiration. See if you can get a, a real intuitive sense of what this heart, what your heart aspires to. Some sense of release, freedom, universal love. And really notice that you trust that intuition. That means you have some experience. It's not something somebody told you you should have. I mean, maybe somebody did tell you you should have it. But what you're relying on is that direct, immediate intuition that it's right, or as we say, the word faith or sada in Buddhism in Pali, the language Pali, the Pali language, means to put your heart upon, you, to, like you're willing to put your heart there, you're willing to trust. So what is that, that we're willing to trust? And then because we've been sort of given some instructions from the Buddha... We know it's something about the way the mind is paying attention. That's what he says is the crux of the problem. And then he says, check it out. See if it isn't true for you. What I found was true for me, that the origin, the cause for all suffering, all stress, all psychic weight, has something to do with one's attitude or one's view, how one pays attention And start tracking that with steady, mindful, wise awareness. Tracking it continuously, doing that correlation that I talked about, and it will start to dawn on the mind, it will clarify in the mind, oh yeah, this kind of view is suffering, this kind of view is freedom from suffering. And that is what purifies the habits of mind is seeing it over and over and over again. And then the rest is just patience. Keep doing it and start being inspired by how your life begins to change. Boy, five years ago, if I were in this situation, I'd be tied up in knots. I'm a a little reactive, but my heart doesn't feel very burdened. But in the past, it would have been hard to bear. We notice something's changed. It isn't what it used to be. Oh, well, maybe this practice works. So we have some time, about 13 minutes. It would be nice to hear from you Uh, more comments about aspiration, also your sharings or questions about awareness and what you've learned or confusion about what I said tonight, and then about what you've learned about self-view and the absence of self-view and the experiences that arise when there's a strong self-view. And your experience when it wasn't very strong or was seemingly absent. So what comes to mind? Yeah, first Max, you want to pass it back? Hi, I'm Max. Um, So I'm like attracted to the struggle. Kind of like at work I want to like solve the problem like it's, I'm attracted to solving it, or like playing Mario Kart or something. Um, and how do you like practice being free, but still like have that passion that is just there? Yeah, I don't know about the the passion part. I mean, this part of it is just words. But the first point that Max made that I think is important is that we are addicted to the intensity of self-dramas. So even our games, like when we play games, we tend to get revved up. Or when we watch movies, you know, we identify with different characters because it makes it more intense. If we're watching a slasher film, you know, hopefully you're not identifying with the (laughs) aggressor. But it's like, you know, there's something exciting about... um, the intensity of wanting, fearing. It's interesting how much we gravitate towards the intensity of fear, of greed, of passion. Because we feel when that self-view is strong, I feel very alive. So we have to appreciate that that's the way it is. And we have to notice That when there's a strong self-view, on the one hand, on the surface, it feels very enlivening. But if we look more carefully, we notice how tight it is. It's actually not pleasant. But on the surface, it seems pleasant. You can just check it out. One of the things that happens when people practice for a while, some of the ways that people spend their lives begin to change. You know, there's certain people you used to hang out with or certain activities you used to do. And it's not a value judgment. It's just like, that's not good anymore. That doesn't make me happy anymore. Think about some of the things you did when you were a teenager that you don't do anymore. Why don't you do it now? You realize that now it's actually not a cause for happiness to do that. But yet it seemed like a cause for happiness. There are a lot of people in the world your age that do things you would never do. Why not? Because you don't find it pleasing. So the question, then the second question you ask Max, Max, is what replaces that? right? Because we do get some joy, superficial joy, from doing things when we make it intense. Like I really want to solve this problem, or I really want to win this game, or I really want this person to like me, or I really... You could just fill in the blank. And so it's it's almost like a different, um, once we keep reflecting on aspiration, what we find more appealing than the intensity of drama is the release of the heart. The heart putting down a load. See, we don't even know that that's actually a way of happiness. It's kind of like we're carrying a 75-pound backpack And we haven't even conceived of that as a possibility that the one is a backpack and two, we could take it off. But any time we have an experience of putting it down for a moment, that experience of having held a 75-pound backpack our whole life and then put it down, even if we pick it right back up, we'll never forget that felt so good to put that weight down. And all of a sudden, instead of doing this distracting thing, so we're carrying a 75-pound backpack. Well, if you actually are carrying a 75-pound backpack your whole life, it makes sense you'd want to watch an intense movie. Because temporarily you forget the movie's so intense that you forget the intensity of having a 75-pound backpack on. But once you know you can take it off, gradually the mind shifts its orientation and it's much more interested in like, how did it come on, like what does it feel like to put it on, and what does it feel like to take it off? You know, oh no, it's kind of partly off, but I'm partly holding it, or I'm kind of picking it up, it's getting worse, it's getting heavier. That becomes more interested than video games, or winning at something, or being the one who solved the problem. I mean, there's a lot of natural and relatively wholesome activities we can be in that's not Dharma practice, but there's nothing as satisfying as putting down the load of self, self self-drama. There's nothing that is in the ballpark of that experience. But most of us haven't had clarity about how much freedom there is in that experience. So initially our exploration is we don't have a lot of confidence but we're interested enough to check it out. But then once you start having some experiences of being all locked up in some drama and then like in a sit and then awareness and wisdom arises and the mind drops the drama that release is pretty convincing like oh there's something to this practice. Because a moment ago I was tied up in knots and it was not pleasant and now it's not a problem. Now how did that happen? Why can't that happen all the time? These sort of ideas, thoughts come to mind and we get drawn into the practice more and more. We still do things, you know, you still may play ping pong with people and you might get into it and that's fine, but what becomes more meaningful and more the orientation of the mind is not picking up the backpack or when it's picked up figuring out how it can be put down. It's just more interesting to the mind. It's not like you're trying to be a good meditator or a good Buddhist practitioner. It just becomes the orientation of the mind. What can be put down? Is this heart already put everything down? Then where is the freedom? Is it here? Well, maybe there's something that's being held that I'm not aware of. What fear is being held? What greedy idea is being held? Some idea of If only, then I'll be happy. What construction of the mind is being grasped now that's really a 75-pound backpack that could be put down? We start getting interested. Thanks, Max, for the comment. Yeah, you want to pass it over? Hey, I
2: don't know exactly what I'm trying to say, but when you said aspiration and you said what do you trust and what do you want on your gravestone or whatever, um, music came to mind for all three of those and it's kind of a new chapter in my life right now and i'm just wondering if you have any
1: Yeah but i would ask yourself what is the quality of the heart or mind that you're that comes that that's there when you're involved in music because that's the more relevant thing what is the mind's experience or the heart's experience that you aspire to with music because why, why music? Yeah, so that's what I would look at. And so if we, if you're playing music or listening to music and for some reason you're drawn to it, it's more like another thing someone might say is, yeah, I want true love. I, w- I want a partner in my life or something like that. Or I want to get rid of a partner in my life. <laughs> that's what I aspire to. So whatever that might be or wealth. But that's what, We have to be like, well, what is it about that? Oh, it's the safety in that. Or maybe for you with music, it's like the mind loses itself in it. Well, what is that experience? Oh, when the mind loses itself, it's really losing its neurotic, self-centered drama. Oh, yeah, that's kind of what Mark was saying, too. It's just that I mistakenly thought it was the music, but actually what I aspire to is not the music, But the mind, the the kind of neurotic, struggling, reactive mind disappearing. That's what I aspire to. And I just happen to know that experience when I'm involved in music. And I don't see it too many other places in my life. So why can't that mind that arises sometimes in music arise in other places in my life?
2: Thanks. I'll chew on that.
1: Yeah, thanks. Time for maybe one more. Tom in the back.
2: Um, yeah I recently had this maybe ten minute period in my life where i 'm um, taking care- a lot of caretaking with my mother who 's ninety four and in a, in a state of dementia and it 's um, very difficult and dramatic and all of these things one one day last week i i um, she asked me she said, Would you take me to that red car in the parking lot that belongs to Tom Carlson and I, and, and and take me home?" And I looked at her and I said, "Well, uh, I am Tom Carlson." <laughs> and she said, "Oh, I don't care." <laughs> <laughs> and then I said, "You know, I said, well, actually, I have to leave now, and um, I'm not going to be taking you. But I really, um, I really want you to stay here because you're really getting better here. You're, you're doing. They're doing a lot of help for you." And, and she um, looked at me and she said, "I hate you." And I looked at her and I just went, that's exactly why I love you so much. (laughs) And it just popped out, you know, and it was like, it was like this, taking this experience and, you know, just having this intention when I go there, because I do love my mom. And, um, you know, and I felt so good about it. And she kind of had this little smile on her face. And then I left and I got to the car, you know, and then I, and, and I cried, because my mom is three years old, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and then I realized, oh, she's never said that to me in my whole life. And I thought, God, that's, that was my heart kind of opening to this. Boy, have I, am I lucky. Yeah.
1: You know, she, says it, she
2: said it now, but
1: she really didn't
2: mean it, you know.
1: Yeah. So. And it's a good example because you could have wrapped yourself up in knots around an experience like that for weeks, months years even right but even really intense experiences they they might on the one hand be very poignant we might feel really deep feelings of loss like the loss of the mother you knew but the lack of clinging the lack of grasping the lack of needing to control it is beautiful even though it might there might be a lot of sadness and loss The way the mind relates to the sadness and loss can be very liberated and and free and beautiful. Thanks for sharing that, Tom. Let's just uh, take a few seconds and let go of the words. Appreciate being here together in community. it isn't an easy practice but there have been generation after generation of women and men they had busy lives complicated lives they did the practice woke up became free to some degree at least and shared it generation by generation and now many thousands of years later we are the recipients of these teachings and it's our turn May we, each of us, realize deep peace, freedom from self-centered drama, real love and wisdom. May our lives be a cause for peace. Thanks, everyone, for being here tonight.
0: This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity.